Hello and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We are taping today at our regular time, 10.30 a.m., Thursday, March 28th. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Joanne Cannon of Politico. Hi, Julie. Margot Sanger-Katz of the New York Times. Good morning. And Kimberly Leonard of the Washington Examiner. Hi. Also this week, an interview with filmmaker Mike Eisenberg, who made a documentary about medical mistakes in honor of his dad, the late John Eisenberg, who headed what is now the Federal Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. And our weekly reminder, if you want to see us as well as hear us, an edited version of the podcast is now on the cable channel Newsy at 11 a.m. Eastern every Sunday. Also, we're going to do another Ask Us Anything episode next month. If you have a burning policy question you'd like us to answer, you can drop us a line at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Please include your name and where you're from along with your question. Okay, we will get to the big ACA news, but first this week, the breaking Medicaid news. Late Wednesday afternoon, a federal district court judge here in Washington, D.C., struck down the Medicaid work requirements for Kentucky, where they haven't begun yet, and for Arkansas, where they have resulted in more than 18,000 people being struck from the rolls. I would point out that most of them were uh, eliminated from their Medicaid coverage, not for failure to work, but for failure to navigate the Byzantine system created for them to report their work hours. So what happens now? Joanne. This has been a priority for the administration. Um, it was with the work requirements. The work requirements. Um, I think eight states have permission to go ahead with them. Plus, Maine got it, and then when they got a Republican, uh, a Democratic governor, they they didn't. So nine states have been approved. Eight states want to do it, and about four or five other states are in the pipeline. I think there's a total of fifteen, uh, something like that, or either have a, uh, an application pending, or waiver application pending, or, or have approval. It has been a ideological commitment. Uh, from Seema Verma, in particular, is very identified with this, and the but then the Trump administration and the court said no, and uh, it's the second time the court said no. Same judge, right? Same judge. I mean, I do not think this. Le- There's also a case pending now in, in New Hampshire. This is going to be in the courts for some time. It may well end up along the long list of things that may well up end up in the Supreme Court. The fundamental argument is. The administration says this enhances people's well-being, forcing, you know, making them work. And the judge agreed with the Medicaid, Medicaid advocacy groups that said Medicaid is about health. It is not about whether you work or not. That certainly they encourage work. They want work. People should work. But that it should, your health care should not be contingent on your employment status, that that's not what a health care entitlement is. And most people in, in Arkansas, the only state where this had taken effect, do work. It wasn't, the data is yeah. really shaky on, on – I mean, we know that a lot of them are working. The other thing is that this administration officials, including Secretary Azar, have said that you know people who were lost their eligibility in, in 2018 were eligible to regain it. In, in January 2019, and very few of them have. And we actually had a reporter look at the paperwork and what kind of information. I mean, the administration was saying, well, that means, you know, they found jobs. And there, there's no, and then they admitted that they don't have data to prove that. And we had a, one of our reporters, Dan Goldberg, called around down there, and we saw the paperwork. We saw what information they're giving. And, and you know, we're, it's far from clear they understood that they are eligible again that quickly. It is not clear at all that they know that they can get it or how to get it. Um, 
it's there is one sentence in this letter they get, but it's not too much. And this, I mean, this was the big problem in Arkansas originally, right? That people couldn't, they couldn't figure out how to report. It wasn't they weren't working. They couldn't figure out how to report their hours because originally they had to do it online. So I spent some time on the website in Arkansas and it is just not intuitive. And I don't think that that is a criticism of the Arkansas state officials that they like weren't trying. I just think it's really it's really hard to build a user-friendly website that's well-suited for this. And the particular one they had was like an existing website that helped them administer other benefits. And it took like four or five clicks to even get to the place where you would submit your hours. But before you got there, you had to do things like register to vote or opt not to register to vote. I mean, it's sort of like, you know, and there were many clicks you had to make that were not intuitive, like where you wouldn't know which button to push to get to the next stage. I had to actually have uh, one of the advocates walk me through so I could get to the place where you would begin reporting your hours. But And I think the difficulties that people have been having in Arkansas are, I think, a good illustration of a broader point, which is a lot of Americans think that the idea of having a work requirement is a good one, that people that people who are getting government benefits should be encouraged to work and earn them. And obviously the court case is about whether that is an appropriate set of conditions to place on Medicaid. But I think in general, there are a lot of people who think that that's like a good trade. It pulls well. But the administration is actually way more complicated. You know what I mean? If there was sort of like an omniscient state that could see who was working and who was not working, that would be one way to administer a work requirement. But the reality is, is that in order to actually administer a work requirement, you have to create all of this difficult administrative complexity where people have to figure out how to get to a computer, how to click through all these things. They have Live to do it every month. They broadband. have to get their you know, <laughs> job to tell them things. They have to make sure that their hours are scheduled in a way that where they have a consistent number of hours every month. And what ends up happening is that you know, what we saw in Arkansas is a lot of people just kind of couldn't get through all the hoops. And I think there's a difference between not having coverage because you're not working, which is controversial, but is a different debate, I think, than not getting coverage because you couldn't deal with all this administrative complexity, which I, you know, I think there is evidence is what happened in Arkansas and what actually may be likely to happen in larger numbers in some other states. Because as I said, I think the Arkansas state officials took certain steps to try to mitigate the coverage yes. losses that yeah. other states are not taking. Well, well, the other states aren't aren't yet. Doing running, it, so we don't know. I mean, in fairness, Cindy Gillespie, who's running the program, did in respond in Arkansas. Did respond to uh, the criticism and the problems, and she did make um, there were some changes. I think in December or possibly January that did make it easier to report. I think they can do it by phone now. Yeah, although I mean, apparently doing it by phone is almost not, as hard as doing it online. It's not. It's it's still problematic, but it, it, they they have responded to some of the criticism. I mean, some of the the other issues in rural Arkansas, not everybody has inter- access to internet. I mean, it's just it's a logistical mess. Um, but the, the philosophical debate that's going on in the courts is it really boils down to is Medicaid about health or is Medicaid about health and your economic I don't know that activity. that's totally a philosophical debate. I mean, I think that's really a legal debate about what the Medicaid statute well, sure. says right. and whether these are valid interpretations of that statute. Right. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's reflecting – the legal debate is – reflecting the philosophical So, Kimberly, debate. I want to zoom out for a minute. We have a number of states now that had not ex- previously expanded Medicaid that are now saying, well, if we can do a work requirement, then we might expand Medicaid. So what does this do to those states? Yeah, exactly. And the Trump administration does appear kind of undeterred by what's just happened. They probably, you know, will appeal the decision. Uh, we're going to hear from Arkansas's governor very soon, actually, about what the state plans to do. He's holding a press conference um, about an hour from now, actually. And um, 
you know, one of the reasons that uh, states were considering this was because of that kind of philosophical question over, you know, who should have access to Medicaid. And it was sort of seen as an opportunity to bring along some of those more conservative states that, you know, want to make sure that Medicaid goes to what they consider to be the neediest populations. And so... I suppose we'll see whether the Trump administration continues to allow some of these waivers. Um, One of the reasons that the judge ruled when he did was because otherwise, beginning on April 1, we would have start to see um, people disenrolled from Medicaid because if they had not done work or reported their work from January through March. And because you have to do it for if you don't do it for three months, then you're kicked off of the program. And so that was one of the reasons why he ruled so soon. And so now all of that is sort of put on hold. And also Kentucky was about to take effect, wasn't it? In the summer. Mm -hmm. But also, I mean, I don't think that this necessarily stops other states from going forward because there are different district courts around the country who are going, you know, one may, one can envision different judges (laughs) reaching different conclusions in the different courts and different circuits. And I I think I I don't know that this just stops other states from from trying to do their own program and saying theirs is different or theirs qualifies or, or you know, that some of this was on um, sort of procedural issues too and how it was unveiled. Um, I, this is certainly not an issue that's going to go away. I mean, I think also the, the president's budget actually called for this to be a nationwide requirement. All right. Well, let's talk about the other big news for the week. Um, on Monday night, the Trump administration Justice Department surprised most of us, I guess, by switching the administration's position on that federal lawsuit out of Texas that declared the Affordable Care Act unconstitutional back in December. So now the administration is throwing in with the Republican state plaintiffs, um, mostly Republican attorneys general and a couple of governors, arguing that eliminating the tax penalty for not having insurance should require the entire health law to fall. Who wants to remind us uh, where this suit is in the judicial process and why the administration might want to change its position? I can answer the first question. I have no idea about the second one. Um, So this is a case that was decided by a district court judge in Texas. So there's been a ruling and that that judge found for the Republican states. Uh, So they basically he basically ruled that there was this constitutional defect in the individual mandate as it's been amended recently and that the problem with the individual mandate was so inextricably related to the rest of the health care law that the whole thing should be repealed. Of course, that has not happened. It's on hold, you know, this which often happens as court as cases work their way through the courts. So now it's being appealed to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. That's the, you know, next level of judgment. And it was in the briefing uh, to, to this appeals court that we saw the Trump administration change its position. There's been some reporting, both good reporting from Politico and from The New York Times about sort of what happened inside the White House, sort of how this uh, change of mind came about. And it seems like really it was sort of the president, the White House, uh, that changed its mind. It wasn't the lawyers in HHS. I'm sorry, the lawyers in the Justice Department who were, you know, writing the briefs and then deciding, wow, this judge's opinion was so persuasive, we need to change our legal argument, or you know, we really just can't, in good conscience, continue to make the same argument that we made in the lower court. This was a political decision. It's. I think worth underlining that it's very unusual for the Justice Department to change its position in the middle of litigating a case like this. Um, well, it's also unusual for the Justice Department not to be defending a law. Right. <laughs> right. But after they didn't defend the – they defended part of the law. And now right. they, their original position was that 
a narrower, uh, an important section of the law that patient protections. The popular one. Right. The, the pre-existing conditions, conditions and related, some related consumer and patient protections. Their their original position was that, yes, those should be repealed because of the mandate or struck down because of the mandate, uh, the change in the mandate. But the rest of the law, you know, men, what does menu label calories on menus or Medicaid, Medicaid expansion, um, some of the delivery system changes. Generic the, biologic drugs. All sorts of things that are in that in that law that it didn't all have to go. And now they've decided, oops, yes, it does. <laughs> now, the, fact, right. the fact that they've said that doesn't mean that the court will agree with them. Uh, the, the Circuit Court of Appeals is going to consider all of this, and they may not uh, agree with this Texas judge, who I think is generally viewed to be pretty conservative and pretty sympathetic to this administration, but sort of not the and who average was, judge. who was kind of handpicked by the plaintiffs. Uh, but, you know, who knows? I mean, the courts can do what they do, and it's a three-judge panel that's going to consider this in the Fifth Circuit, and, and we'll have to see how it resolves itself. But, you know, just to get back to the why, I think the politics of this issue are very puzzling to me. It appears that the president, you know, at the urging of Mick Mulvaney, his uh, chief of staff and budget director or former budget director, uh, felt that this was a good issue for Republicans going into the election, that, uh, you know, the base really wants to repeal Obamacare, that they feel some regret they didn't do it, and they want to, like, nudge the Congress back into action. Perhaps if they could repeal it through the courts, then there would be that would be an impetus for there to be further legislative action. Uh, I don't see a strong case for that being true. Uh, I also think that the so two other things. Um, one is just because of all the things that you guys just mentioned, uh, repealing the entire Affordable Care Act, that's not something that was ever contemplated by the Republican Congress in this administration or by the Trump administration in its most recent budget proposal. Repealing the entire Affordable Care Act would be enormously disruptive to lots of parts of the functioning of our health care system uh, and actually like almost impossible to imagine how some parts of it would be achieved. Um, like would those generic biologic drugs just not – be, be approved, approved anymore. anymore. What, you know, I mean, there's there's like a lot of things like that where you're like, how do you even, uh, you know, put the put it back in the tube? Um, but also, the Democrats control the House now, and they actually have been the Democratic Party has been somewhat divided about health care. We've talked about this on the podcast before, where there's been one faction that really wants to focus on incremental improvements to the ACA. Let's talk about pre-existing conditions. Let's talk about, you know, reinsurance and some smaller things. And then there's been, uh, you know, particularly among the presidential field, a real interest in Medicare for all and expanding coverage and trying to do things that are kind of uh, more on the left, more dramatic changes to our health care system. And you know, this is the kind of thing that just kind of unifies them. Like they're all now going to protect the ACA. This is a good message for them. The public likes it. They ran on it and won on it in 2018. And it just feels to me like this kind of it's ground shaking because the consequences of this idea becoming reality would be huge. But it also feels kind of ground shaking because I think it really changes the terms of the healthcare debate that we're all going to be having as a country over the next couple of years. And it really puts healthcare squarely into the conversation that the president now seems to have decided that he wants to run on repealing Obamacare, which was we had received no signals about before. But apparently that was like all he talked about. He had lunch with the, the Senate Republicans on Tuesday. Um, but, but meanwhile, also Tuesday was Nancy Pelosi's birthday. <laughs> um, and the Democrats had previously scheduled, even before the whole Mueller report thing came out, to do to unveil their Affordable Care Act 2.0 on Tuesday. So my question, is this the best birthday present that Nancy Pelosi has ever gotten? We don't know what her husband bought her. <laughs> True. <laughs> 
It was definitely a political gift. They had timed it to be sort of around the ninth birthday of the Affordable Care Act. And so then they... Which was over the weekend. Exactly. March 23rd. So it was um, then something that they definitely were able to use in order to help to unify their party and say, this is what the emergency is now. Obviously, the Affordable Care Act is under, you know, a lot of attack and we need to make sure to act on this. So they certainly have seized on that very strongly. They've they've sort of framed Republicans as antagonists on health care and themselves as those who will work to fight and protect health care. And some of the proposals they've put out out really have to do with um, trying to ensure that individuals are paying less in premiums um, so that more people would then join the market. So that would likely increase the number of people with health insurance and also decrease what they personally are paying for coverage. Um, I should mention it at all as well that a lot of these bills have a lot of support from the healthcare industry. So that means the biggest opponents are really Republicans. But they also, the timing was just mind-boggling. I mean, Trump arguably had the best day of his presidency on, on Sunday. Sunday yeah. You know, and the Mueller report, the summer, the four-page summary of the Mueller report came out. The president tweeted, you know, total exoneration, started doing victory laps, and 24 hours later, we're revealing health care, which has not been a winner for... Uh, Although the, we, we should point out that the reason they did it Monday night is that there was a filing was a deadline, deadline in the lawsuit. Still. But still. And then he goes was... to the... Trump starts talking about we're going to be the party of health care and we're going to do this. I mean, it's the... the and you, you could also always I mean, can't you always get pushed back a deadline in court? I mean, the, the whole and they did it sort of quietly. I mean, we saw it on Twitter. But the the yes, it happened at nine o'clock at, at night. Yes. But just the fact that that the the president himself has made healthcare the topic this week beyond the court case. There's the court case and there's the push for legislation, which does not exist and probably won't. But it, it really is pretty astonishing. Yeah, we saw President Trump try to put it in Senate Republicans' lap and say, you know, I'm expecting you all to come up with a really great plan. We're going to be the party of health care and so forth. We then went as reporters and talked to Republicans on the Hill, and they said, no, we're going to let the White House take the lead on this. So they're putting the ball back in President Trump's court. And I will say that um, Mark Short, who is the chief of staff for Vice President Pence, did say on MSNBC yesterday that the Department of Health and Human Services will roll out proposals in coming months. So we'll all be watching. That really closely. We should point out that, that Politico first broke the story, which has since been confirmed by others, that um, this change in position in the lawsuit came over the objections of both Attorney General Barr and Health and Human Services Secretary Azar. They, they, who is a lawyer. And yeah, under- <laughs> that's right. Who used to be the general counsel at HHS. Right. I mean, the, the whole there's we won't get into it again right now. But I mean, the, the whole legal argument in this lawsuit is um, something that even conservative scholars who disagree with the Affordable Care Act don't think it's a particularly good legal argument. That's a side topic that we can come back to another day. But Yes. I mean, as far as the White House's health care plan goes, uh, I think it is interesting, this <laughs> back and forth between the Senate and the White House about whose problem this is. But I do think it is instructive to look at their budget. So we talked about the budget. You know, this is a very recent document that the White House put out. And in that budget, they actually endorsed a particular plan to repeal and replace Obamacare uh, that did not you know, remove menu labeling and uh, biosimilars and all these other things. It was, I, it's I basically turning the money back over to so the So I don't know, like, if, they're, if the new proposal variant. will put those things back or not. But it was a plan that was, I think, similar in concept to a plan that came from Lindsey Graham and uh, Bill Cassidy. And there was the third top co-sponsor of that bill that I've now forgotten. But Santorum, and he wasn't <laughs> yeah. a senator. But, but I just think that it is worth remembering that that particular proposal was – 
so unpopular among Senate Republicans that and and I think also was perceived to be so politically damaging that it was never brought to the floor for a vote. Unlike other proposals to replace Obamacare, which did go to the floor of the Senate and, of course, failed to win enough votes to become law. But, you know, this seems like the proposal that the White House has most recently endorsed is one that seems like it would face a lot of hurdles to passage even in a Republican Senate. Is it, and, is yeah. it fair to say that, that this this whole the way this whole thing got handled um, appalled Republicans on Capitol Hill? Privately, they are very frustrated. You know, they're kind of telling they're kind of telling us that, you know, we'll wait to hear from the White House and so forth. Um, You know, Republicans in the Senate were ready and they were moving forward and are moving forward on uh, legislation to help lower drug prices, on legislation to address surprise medical bills. Those are things they can probably achieve on a bipartisan basis. And they even got Trump on board with you know, that talking about surprise medical bills. So they were kind of looking forward to, you know, moving on from Obamacare. They've, they've said that. And so now that this is kind of back in the spotlight, it certainly doesn't help them heading into 2020. Um, and it, they are very frustrated at, at what has happened. The two key committee chairmen, Senate, Senator Grassley, who is the chairman of Senate Finance, and Senator Lamar Alexander, who is the head of the Senate Health or Health Committee, both went on the record last night saying, they saying, you know, we're going to concentrate on, you know, the things we were already doing, the things we just talked about and drug surprise bills. Uh, oh, Senator Alexander wants to look at overall costs. The the neither one of them said, oh, goody, the president <laughs> wants us to reveal Obamacare again with a Democratic House this time. No, that was not their That was not their official. They, they, but they said on the record that they were going to concentrate on these other things that we just mentioned. So. It, it is, of course, possible that the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals will rule on this, you know, relatively soon and will disagree with the Texas judge and will basically say, no, 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 like Obamacare is fine. It can stay. Uh, That may change this political conversation. Maybe it will allow the president to change the subject again if he decides at that time that he wants to. But it's also possible that this will remain a live issue for a while. And, you know, we're going to be talking about it for a long time, even if those Senate Republicans would like to not be talking about it. It's also possible in this administration that it'll go away next week and we'll have another hot top. I mean, forget it with this. I mean, it could 20 minutes from now. I mean, it's not exactly like this is an administration with a long attention span. I think that it is a gamble that they have taken. They are basically said to the courts. Yes. Go ahead. Overturn the whole of Obamacare if you feel like it. And if they do, they there is no way to avoid the consequences of that. If they don't, then yes, it's easy to change the subject. And we don't know which it will be and exactly when it will happen. But it does feel like a little bit of like a risky way to repeal Obamacare because they have so little control over the details and the timing. And it's a repeal without a replace. And it's a repeal without legislation. And it's, you know, it's, it's, no, it's I, a I, sudden I, repeal. No, it's not I, even I gradual. You know, I agree with what, I don't think it'll go away completely. It might not have the intent. I mean, it may not be. It's, it's, it's here and it's here to stay through 2020. That's clear. It, and 2024 and 2028, whether it has the intensity that we have this week, that the subject could easily be changed 500 times between you know now and Monday. All right. Well, one more thing I want to get to. Um, uh, this week, we got the final report from the Department of Health and Human Services on enrollment in the Affordable Care Act exchanges for 2019. The final number, 11.4 million, was pretty close to last year, even though there is no longer, as we've been discussing, a financial penalty for not having coverage. So what does this tell us about the state of the Affordable Care Act in 2019 um, in the, the fact that it, it has basically been consistent with no mandate? 
Yeah. And it's not just with no mandate. It's that the Trump administration has allowed people to buy plans that fall outside of the Affordable Care Act's rules. And the CBO report that had looked only at 2019 and only at the health insurance exchanges had projected that three million people would fall out of the exchanges. So obviously the um, actual outcome has been very different from that. And they cut all the uh, cut most of the outreach budget, the outreach. too. So. Yes. And for navigators who um, work to help people sign up, they cut it significantly by about 90 percent. And then they also cut um, advertising that really lets people know that they can enroll for the exchanges and so forth. Um, and those, by the way, are two different parts that Democrats would like to put back into their ACA 2.0 package. So, um, you know, so th- the administration is calling it steady um, and they really think that, you know, they're showing HHS that what is calling done, it steady. <laughs> the, the, correct. Correct. Um, and so they're saying that, um, you know, what they've done has been successful, essentially. And um, it'll be interesting to see, you know, what specific parts of the law Democrats are kind of looking to establish or not establish. Um, I did notice that the cost sharing reduction subsidies that Trump had ended um, were not in the markup that occurred in the Energy and Commerce Committee yesterday. So um, and and some of it has to do with the fact that people are getting less expensive coverage already. So it'll be interesting to see what they kind of go after and what they choose to let go, given that enrollment if you could say has been, you know, pretty consistent. But Margaret, my, I guess my bigger phil- philosophical question is how important was the mandate since obviously uptake of enrollment has held pretty steady? I think there's kind of a glass half full, glass half empty way of looking at the way things have shaken out. You know, the expectation of Congress when it passed the Affordable Care Act of the CBO when they imagined the ultimate enrollment and, you know, most outside observers was that this market was going to be larger, there would be more people in it. Um, and that there would be a larger reduction in the number of uninsured people as a result of the growth of this market. Instead, what we've seen is that it's kind of small, but it seems to be stable at that small size. But there are still a lot of uninsured people who could benefit from coverage in this market who aren't getting to it for various reasons, which may be reasons of affordability, of knowledge, of logistics. Uh, You know, we don't really know because in part because they're not doing this outreach to try to reach that population, figure out what it is that they need. But the glass half full, as I will say, like a couple of years ago, I think there was a lot of, you know, implosion, death spiral, like very hyperbolic language that we were hearing, some of it politically motivated, but I think some of it reflecting a sense that things were really unstable and shaky and didn't feel like they were going to be able to continue on in the fashion that they have. And the reality is that without a lot of really big policy changes, except for the repeal of the individual mandate, which you would think would be destabilizing, we don't really hear those words being used anymore. And if you talk to the health insurers, they're pretty happy. I think it took them a while, but they sort of figured out how to make money in this market. I think the ones that are in there want to be in there. They think it's okay. I mean, I'm sure they would love to have more customers. I mean, it's not that they don't want. That's why they're supporting this legislation. They want people to be more subsidized. They want to have more customers. But I think they're not scared anymore. And that's the big question. Is, did it turn out that the subsidies are more important than the yes, mandate? because, I mean, as enrollment has declined since its peak, it's, but it has not fallen off a cliff. But it was higher a couple years ago. Affordability is definitely a factor for some people. We know that. Um, it is not the only factor outreach hard to reach policy, all the other things we just discussed. But but if you're not subsidized, and we say this pretty much every week, you know, if you're not subsidized and you're buying on the individual market, it's still expensive. It is still very expensive and very expensive in some parts of the country, not as much in others, but it's expensive. And the so, out-of-pocket is also right, expensive. Right. So you're I spending mean, a lot if, of money and then you have a big deductible. So the, the affordability question is, is 
you know, and both parties have, you know, proposed solutions that are different, and but there is an affordability problem. But, you know, it basically, you know, the word I always use is, you know, Obamacare muddling through. And, and that's what's, you know, it's, it's not what its champions had hoped. It certainly hasn't been what the Cassandras prophesized. It's there and it's muddling through. If there's ever political will to fix it and make it better, they can fix it and make it better. They haven't been able to kill it and they've certainly tried. I think it may be a little bit too soon to know for sure about the individual mandate itself and its effect. It's such a weird policy because when you find out about it is so lagged after when you sign up for insurance. You know, it's like when you pay your taxes, then you discover that you are being penalized or in this case, a year not later. Penalized. Yeah. Actually, there's, that's right. There's people who are going <laughs> to fill out their taxes now who are still going to be penalized because it was in effect for 2018. So I don't know if we should overread any of these results as having to do with the mandate. Clearly, the mandate didn't have this like incredible salience to everyone in the public that when they were made aware that it went away, uh, you know, coverage dropped off dramatically. So I think we could say like, okay, it didn't do that. But, you know, I think awareness of the mandate was actually not as even though it was a well-known provision, it wasn't it was only known by like maybe two thirds of people. A lot of them weren't really affected by it. I don't know how many of them really know it went away. The polling on that suggests that a lot of them didn't know that either. This timing issue is weird because people are paying their taxes for 2018 now. They're still going to get hit with a penalty. And there is this theory that I have sort of enjoyed by some economists, the sort of it is better to have loved and lost uh, theory, which is that the individual mandate was really important in establishing certain norms around insurance coverage and kind of pushing people to participate in these markets. And that like now the American public is like more in the health insurance having habit and we've changed the norms. And so the fact that there is no longer this requirement is less important than it would have been if the Obamacare had launched without it in the first place. Now, that's an unknowable thing, but it's an interesting theory that, you know, it's sort of not totally symmetrical to put it in and take it away. Uh, As if it was, yeah, that it wouldn't be the same if it was never there in the first place. Yeah. But yeah. That's like the crazy thing about the politics, right? I mean, the Republicans in the tax bill last year succeeded in getting rid of the single most unpopular aspect of the law, the individual mandate. They then proceeded to go after the most popular part of the law, (laughs) pre-existing conditions. So I'm not a political consultant, but if I was, I probably wouldn't have recommended that. (laughs) All right. I think that's as much time we have for the news this week. Um, Now we're going to play the interview I did earlier this week with filmmaker Mike Eisenberg, and then we will be back with our extra credits. It is my pleasure to welcome to the podcast Michael Eisenberg, writer and director of the film To Air is Human, a patient safety documentary. The film is dedicated to his father, the late John Eisenberg, who I was privileged to know as a young reporter in the 1980s and 1990s. Um, Mike, for those in our audience who don't know, tell us who your dad was and how you came to make the movie. First of all, thanks for having me. My father was, uh, for all intents and purposes, the director of the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality when he passed in 2002. But my understanding of his career was fairly limited because when he passed, I was 17. And as most 17-year-olds, my interest in his career was limited. <laughs> but as the time grew on and I met people who knew him and were inspired by him, I learned a little bit here and there. And in many ways, this film started at its most simplest, an opportunity for me to better understand his work, his legacy, why these people on these occasions that I would meet them would have such great things to say about him. I knew he was a great man, but not as much about him professionally. So getting the opportunity to interview the people who worked with him and and ask them about at least this particular avenue of his career, patient safety, that I didn't really understand much about. And most importantly, when I look around, it didn't seem like there was much in the way of media about it. Certainly not documentaries, and if it did get a chance in the spotlight, it was a two-minute sequence in a feature-length film. So it grew. 
exponentially. I mean, every interview we had was a sort of new path to take. And that's how it usually is with documentary film. But for us, we had a, a very singular goal of thinking about what my father would have done if he were in this position. What are the stories he would follow and what are some of the things he would focus on? Most importantly, that was staying positive and being solutions oriented and not just focusing on the problem, actually showing the solutions, because we believe that his career is a highlight to lifting up the people who are doing the work and showing what it looks like when people really care about an issue, how much can be done. And that was our, our main drive. So for a while, particularly in the 1990s, when the Institute of Medicine report about medical errors came out, this was sort of all the rage and what all health reporters wrote about a lot. And I think a lot of people just assume, well, wasn't this problem taken care of? And it's interesting to look at now the anniversary coming up. Later this year, it's the 20th anniversary of the Two Errors Human Report. And without question, it made waves at that time. And thinking about the way news cycles today you'd be hard-pressed to see it make as much of an impact as it did in the late 90s. But that impact has been long-lasting. Now we have 20 years of work. And I think while sometimes if you look at it in one angle, the numbers look worse, if you look at it in a different way, you see that that actually is an indication of the work that's being done, making this a way more focused issue. People know what it looks like when harm is happening, when errors are occurring in healthcare, and how to prevent at least some of them. There have been success stories already. And then that should serve as motivation to how to continue that work and keep it going. Because what was in that Two Errors Human report is still rings true today and probably will ring true in 50 years. What are a couple of highlights? Because there will be people who know nothing about this problem. (laughs) Well, for us, at least, we we really wanted to focus on some of the less headline-inducing incidents in, in healthcare, namely how communication breakdowns play a pivotal role in the quality of healthcare you receive. And people know how healthcare is complicated. They know that. But what they don't understand is that this Swiss cheese model that happens in healthcare, you're at the end of it when you're a patient. And that Swiss cheese model is when all all the bad things don't get caught. So it goes, the problem goes all the way through the the hole in the cheese. Exactly. And and each person or or process is another layer of cheese that's designed to prevent an error, which is normal and human, from reaching the patient and causing harm. And so when they all line up perfectly, that's when harm occurs. And it's in many cases preventable, especially when it's communication breakdowns. We have one example in the film where the mother, Sue Sheridan's husband, Pat, who had a cancer diagnosis that was not accurately brought back to him through his physician because the pathologist didn't double check that that actual pathology got through to the right person. And so at some point along the lines, an accurate diagnosis becomes six months of non-treatment. Whether or not he still would have died from cancer, who knows? But he didn't get six months of treatment that he should have. In that situation, he's not even part of the statistics, you know, because he died from cancer. He didn't die from a medical error, but it contributed. And that's why we need to look at this with new eyes and a bigger lens and really think about where healthcare can improve. So what's the biggest obstacle? I mean, you looked at an awful lot of things in uh, in the movie. What do you think, you know, if, if there was one thing that could be fixed, would it be communications errors? Would it be better training? Would it be people being willing to admit when they make mistakes? I think training is one of the best ways to start to really make a difference. The culture of safety is something that gets thrown around a lot in healthcare, um, but that's a massive sprawling change. And when you think about how doctors, nurses, surgeons are trained, when you take patient safety seriously and harm seriously, you can build that into their nature and make sure that the processes that they all take when they're working together, but not specifically together, um, that they work together as a team. 
And I think when all those pieces work together, you can prevent harm, but can't be done perfectly without the patient involved. And I think that's one thing that we've come across a lot in our screenings of the film is you have to find a way to involve the patient. They are willing to help. They have the knowledge. They know their body better than anybody else. But most importantly, they don't have to have a doctor, a doctorate. They don't have to have a medical degree to understand how to be part of that conversation. They just need to be invited in. They need to know it's okay to speak up and to say, that didn't sound right. Or to say, did you wash your hands? Which is a bit of a different culture shock in and of itself, but would be nice if that was an accepted question within the healthcare community. And what's next for you? You're going to stay in the health policy realm? You come from health policy royalty. I guess. uh, Well, we've had the opportunity to really see what's next in this story. And for us, we believe casting a light on burnout and clinician well-being would serve as a really wonderful sequel in ways to this film to show that if we do really want to take care of our patients, we have to take care of our providers first. And we have to have measures in place when things go wrong that those people don't feel thrown under the bus. That happens too often as well. And this is something that's no secret either. It's a lot of research has been done, and I think it's ready for a film in and of itself. The question there is, how do we get a film started? Um, there are dollars and cents that make that very difficult. But we want to tell important stories that change people's lives and that, more importantly, think about them from a positive approach instead of just shock and awe, expose, documentary filmmaking, which is effective in many ways, but I think it's important that we also have positive films with solutions-oriented approaches, too. How refreshing. Uh, Last question, how can people see this film? Uh, Well, it's now available on iTunes and Amazon. Uh, We're hoping to roll out to more platforms, hopefully subscription platforms. We've also got screenings all over the country. We just had our 150th. And we continue to book them at hospitals and universities. So we're probably in your community if we haven't been already. And you can go to our website to kind of just see the most updated information about how to access or see the film. And we'll post a link to that. Mike Eisenberg, thank you for joining us and good luck with the film. Thank you. Okay, it is time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week. We think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org. Kimberly, why don't you go first this week? Sure. Well, mine is an adaption from the book The Chief that came out this week, and it's by Joan Biskupic, and it's called The Inside Story of How Roberts Negotiated to Save Obamacare. And it sort of goes into um, and and revealed some surprising um, information about how he had originally supported um, leaving the Medicaid expansion in place. So uh, it's worth a read. It's uh, worth reading the book, too, I think. Well, also that he changed. I mean, we all knew that he changed his vote and, uh, you know, on the Affordable Care Act and basically ended up preserving it. But I think it's an amazing... I I read the... Actually, Joan is a former colleague, and I read the chapter last fall. Um, uh, And I was not allowed to talk about it until now. Uh, (laughs) but, But it's interesting to have him sort of describe the process by which he changed his mind about this. So it is... um yeah, and how he worked to to get some of the more liberal um, justices on his side in order to sort of negotiate a deal. Yeah, there was kind of some interesting horse trading going on. Margot. Mandate trading. Yeah, mandate trading. <laughs> um, I wanted to recommend an article from Phil Gallowitz at Kaiser Health News, Medicaid Expansion Boosts Hospital Bottom Lines and Prices. And Phil has been doing, I think, really revealing reporting for a long time about the ways that the Affordable Care Act has eliminated the need for sort of charity care, which was a traditional thing that a lot of nonprofit hospitals did. You know, people would come in, they didn't have insurance, and the hospital would swallow the cost of taking care of them. And there were free clinics. And he's been doing this reporting for a long time, basically showing that that kind of demand actually really has diminished because of the Medicaid expansion. 
Uh, and what he did in this story I thought was really smart is he looked at a hospital and hospitals in general that have benefited a lot from getting paying customers. They used to have to kind of eat the losses when people came in their doors and sought treatment and couldn't pay their bills. Now those people are covered by Medicaid. And what he found is the hospitals didn't take that money and lower prices for all their other customers. The hospitals like took that money and started like doing renovations and expansions and, you know, doing the things that rich hospitals do. Uh, And it was just a very uh, revealing look at the ways that hospitals make decisions. And I think also is a good reminder that some of the wishful thinking about oh, well, you know, if we give people insurance, that's going to lower health care costs for everyone, uh, is indeed wishful thinking. <laughs> Joanne? Um, this is a series called Pain and Profit, um, and it's about investigating Medicaid managed care in Texas. It's from the Dallas News, and it actually ran last summer and last June, I believe, and all of us missed it, and it, it just won a couple of big awards, um, including the Goldsmith Award. So luckily we all get to see it now, and nothing they wrote in June is irrelevant now. It, it's a really deeply well-reported and also beautifully written, I think, seven- or eight-part series on how fragile patients um, in in Texas Medicaid program, really fragile people, foster kids, disabled people, uh, premature babies um, are not getting the care they need with really devastating consequences. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's really worth the read. It's very powerful. Well, uh, mine is from the New York Times by Margot's Upshot colleague, Aaron Carroll, and it's called My Friend's Cancer Taught Me About a Hole in Our Health System. And it's about the financial and emotional toll one man's cancer took on his family and friends, many of whom took off of work to spend time with him while undergoing treatment and recovering from from those cancer treatments. Um, this guy, I should mention, had really good insurance that paid, you know, virtually all of his medical bills. But as Aaron points out, we dramatically undervalue what it takes to care for someone with a serious illness and how much other people give up to do that. It is, uh, it is a really wonderful story. So that is our show for this week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also appreciate it if you left us a review on iTunes. That helps other people find us too. Also, as usual, you can can email us your comments or questions for our Ask Us Anything episode. We're at what the health, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. I'm at Joanne Kennan. At Sanger Katz. At Leonard KL. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. Be healthy.